Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. What is the proper view of God's love? Well, on today's program, we begin our second week of Dr. Neufeld's series, This is Our God, with an essential message entitled, The God of Love and Grace. We've embarked upon a three-week series called, This is Our God, a topical series on the attributes of God. We've been considering God's greatness, His glory, His power, His changelessness, that He forever exists as Spirit. But up till now, we've only begun to hint at how the glory of God is felt among His people. In a sense, we've been approaching the subject of God and viewing Him like Isaiah saw Him, when His glory so filled the temple that Isaiah cried out, I'm ruined. Or as God told Moses in Exodus 33, verse 20, that no one can see Him and live. And when we think of God, we should be overwhelmed and left speechless and filled with awe and sense the need to fall down and worship. We should not think we can get our mental arms around God. We should know that the highest thought that we can think of God is infinitely below His glory. This is the necessary background that is needed when discussing God's love and grace. For unless love and grace are seen in the presence of infinite and fierce holiness— We will only see love and grace as a kind of buddy relationship with a being who seems so much like ourselves. We'll not be overwhelmed that the altogether righteous and wrath-filled God should condescend to pour out His grace upon us. But also, when we think about five words, love, goodness, mercy, grace, and patience, we're talking about some of the moral attributes of God. And let's also remember that when we talk about the love and goodness, mercy, grace, and patience of God, we're speaking about attributes that are objectively true, as when we said that God is changeless, or that God is eternal, or that God is spirit, or God is omnipotent or all-powerful. We know that God is love, not because that's how we conceive of Him, or that's what our emotions tell us about God, but we know that God is love because God, who knows all things completely, also knows Himself completely. And God has condescended to communicate to us about His moral attributes. God knows Himself accurately and objectively. Today, I want to discuss those five words I've mentioned about God. Let's take them one at a time. First, God is love. 1 John 1.8 says, God is love. Quite simple. We might say, in his essential being, God is love. That means that God didn't become loving when he created a world, but that God always has been, in his essential being, love. Now, how does that work? In John 17, verse 24, Jesus prays to his Father and says, You have loved me before the foundation of the earth. Now, it's not just that the Father loved his Son from eternity past. That love did not just flow in one direction. In John 14, 31, Jesus said, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Now, that's a Trinitarian passage. The Father has loved the Son eternally. Before angels, the universe, and the creation of man, the Father has eternally exercised His love by pouring out that love upon His Son. And the Son, and I know we're getting ahead of ourselves because we're going to be discussing the Trinity next week, but let's notice now that the Son has been submitting to His Father as a demonstration of His love for His Father. For eternity past, the Father and the Son have been loving each other. C.S. Lewis had some insights into the significance of this. He said all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. 
But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world is made, God was not love. Uh, But of course, God does not become love when he creates the world. God is love. Love is an essential attribute of God. And so from eternity past, God the Father was demonstrating his love toward God the Son. And God the Son was demonstrating his great love toward God the Father and the Holy Spirit, who is himself a real person. The third of the three persons who are the one God was the spirit of their love. An eternal, unending demonstration of love is the history of God throughout all ages. Now, what is love? Well, consider the examples of God's love toward us. 1 John 4, 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, from that passage and others, love is portrayed as an act of affection which always involves the giving of oneself for the benefit of the other. And so we have to imagine eternity past in which all three persons in the Trinity were pouring themselves out for the benefit of the other, which resulted in joy and gladness. We can only imagine the pleasure of the outpouring of love within the Trinity for all eternity. And this, by the way, answers the question of why God created the universe. God does not create because he's lonely or needy, for the eternal love and joy within the Godhead was already so rich and full that absolutely nothing needed to be added to God. God is satisfied for all eternity. See, aren't you so thankful that that's so? For if God created you out of a sense of need, then you would exist to fulfill what is lacking in God. The long and short of that ends up in a doctrine of works in which your purpose in life is to work to satisfy an unmet longing in God. But since God has no longing and need, we must then exist for another purpose entirely. So then why did God create it all? Well, the great God of love tells us about this. Although he felt no internal necessity to create, he does create. According to Isaiah 43, verse 7, God created the world for his glory. That would mean that the external universe is an expression of the grandeur and greatness and inexpressible splendor of God. Well, yes, but does creation add more glory or more splendor to God? Now that God created, is he even more glorious than he was before? And the answer is a most emphatic no. During his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, and I'm I'm quoting John 17, verse 5, in which he prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, if creation added glory to God, then Christ would have longed for a glory that came after the Father created, but he does not. He knows that the love of the members of the Trinity for each other in eternity past perfectly showcased the grandeur of God. And also, the grandeur of God needed no more than for the three persons who are the one God to find delight in the perfections of the other. And so the mystery deepens. Why did God want to express his glory in the creation of a physical universe? Even though the Bible doesn't answer the question directly, still I think it does give us clues. Consider David's words in Psalm 26 verse 8. 
O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. I think David means by that that in the tabernacle, there is an expression of just how glorious God is. Or think of Psalm 27, verse 4. Again, it's a psalm of David. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Said another way, David is saying that my soul finds no greater delight than when I am confronted by the grandeur of God. Or go all the way back to Exodus 33. After Israel sinned, God tells Moses to take the people of Israel to the promised land, but he will not be going with them. And then Moses responds by saying, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Moses wants no promised land without God. He, he wants no heaven, no comfortable life, no, no land flowing with milk and honey if God is not in the center of it. How could my soul be satisfied without God? There is no greater beauty or no greater sense of fulfilling my reason for being if it is not an existence centered on God. And in verses like these, we are set to musing over the question of why God created in the first place. If God created a world infused with his glory and created a world in which the redeemed can find no other satisfaction than in God, well, here's our clue. Even though God does not need the world to express his glory and his splendor, yet God creates the world as an external expression of his splendor or of his glory. Imagine an artist who has an inner perception of beauty. Beauty floods his soul and satisfies him, and out of his joy decides to express his experience of beauty in a painting. The painting does not make his experience more beautiful, but his painting is an external overflow of his experience of beauty, and that's what creation is. It is the overflow of the joy of God. It's the external expression of an altogether lovely and satisfied God expressing his satisfaction in a universe of wisdom and magnificence and creativity. Imagine again the love within the Trinity. At some point in time, the great love of God went public and expressed his love in the creation of a man or a woman. More when we come back. When we study what the Bible says about God's love, there is so much to learn. Going beyond the surface, we begin to understand that this love is rooted in the perfect, eternal relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. And here's something else we learn, that though God created this world out of love, including us, it was not out of an unrealized need on his part. Stay with us as Dr. Neufeld continues to explain the rich doctrine of God's love as demonstrated through the cross. Thanks for listening. You know, ever since the ministry was founded almost 60 years ago, it's been our passion to speak into the lives of Canadians with a verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word. We've come such a long way since then, and it's been through the support and prayers of people like you. If you've never partnered financially with us yet, would you consider a gift to help us stay on the air? Your gift means that others can rely on hearing solid Bible teaching on air, online, through your personal email or new free ministry apps, and so many other resources. So to support our ministry programs, donate today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Almost everyone knows John 3.16. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The God who is love, that is essential to his nature, gave to the fallen human race the ultimate expression of his love. The gift of Jesus, the agony of the cross, the free offer of grace, and the transformation of a life that encounters love beyond degree is an external expression of the internal grandeur of the everlasting, eternal, loving God. God demonstrates his love to us in the cross. It showcases his glory, both his righteousness in regard to sin and in his great compassion in regard to the objects of his mercy. This demonstrates just how great our God is and how wonderful that is. The highest value is not to know our sins forgiven. The highest value is to know God and to revel in his love. There can be no greater grandeur than to know the God who is, who is loving for all eternity. And it is not until the sin question is dealt with, and we find that God has given at great cost through the terrible sufferings of his Son, that we find our eyes open. And we can say, as Paul says in, in Romans 11, verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Now, before we move on, I want us to consider the words of Jesus as recorded in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. There is a mandate that comes out of the love of God. Those of us who have been the recipients of God's love expressed in the cross must therefore be transformed by that love. And since the love for one another is best understood as love for other believers, we are still reminded that our love for others cannot be restricted to the family of God alone. Since, as Paul reminds us, that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, we're reminded that if we are to understand the love of God, it must also be given to those who are unworthy of any love at all. We are compelled by Christ's love. Once having tasted his love, we must become loving to all. You know, I need to add here, however, that even though we are called to love others in the way that God has loved us, we cannot love God in the way that he's loved us. For we cannot show compassion to God. Rather, we love God simply by reveling in and enjoying his love. We learn to express our worship to him and express to him the delight that we find in his love, the, the delight that we find in the cross. Now, let's shift gears. We're talking about the attributes of God, and we've noticed how love is an essential attribute of God. Love means that God has eternally given himself for others, both before creation in the love of the three persons who are God, and then after creation in the giving of himself in the, in the form of his Son to die on the cross for human beings made in his image. Now, let's talk about other essential moral attributes of God. Consider Jesus' words in Luke 18, verse 19. No one is good but God alone. Or Psalm 106, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, repeatedly, our Bible tells us that our God is good. We also know that this essential attribute of God is like love expressed in the creation. For instance, Genesis 1.31 tells us, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. See, that shouldn't surprise us, because the creation reflects the attributes of God. 
Those of us who know God have a sure promise that comes from Psalm 84, verse 11. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. The very familiar Romans 8.28 reminds us, For those who love God, all things work together for the good. And Jesus in Matthew 7 verse 11 instructs us, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so we learn that the God who is good expresses his goodness in his gifts and in the outcomes he arranges in the lives of his children. But what is goodness? See, what I'm about to say will sound like it's circular, but hear me out. Since God is good, God is the standard for what is good. Good is what God approves. Evil is what he does not approve. So what is good? Good is what God approves. Now, before you dismiss this, consider Psalm 1 verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, in this sense, the law of the Lord is what God approves, and the counsel of the wicked is that which God does not approve. And so if we are to be good as God is good, we must learn to train our taste buds to learn to approve and delight in and to imitate the things that God approves. But still, we might argue, but what if God approves of something that's not good? But here we run into a problem. On what basis will we decide what is good? First, God is the standard of what is good, and good is not the standard to which God must be held to account. God is ultimate, and all his ways are just. After all, he's God. Furthermore, God does not change, and therefore his goodness remains constant. And finally, we change. You know, in Nazi Germany, it was considered good at one moment of time to advocate for racism. If our principles of goodness are the standard, then goodness means no more than we adhere to cultural norms of the day. But in contrast to that, to say that God is good is to say that nothing can be good unless it is favored by God. See, let's keep moving. God's goodness is demonstrated in his mercy, his grace, and his patience. In essence, these three attributes of God, mercy, grace, and patience, are merely the expressions of his goodness within given circumstances. See, what do I mean? Mercy simply means that God expresses his goodness to those who are suffering or to those who are in great need. Mercy is often paired with compassion. Think of the incident of the healing of the two blind men recorded in Matthew 9:27. They realize that Jesus is passing by them and they begin to shout, "Have have mercy on us, son of David." They mean by that that they would hope that Jesus would be moved by love at the sight of their suffering and that he would respond in pity. Mercy expresses the love and goodness of God to those who are in great need. Mercy is the love and goodness of God expressed when there is suffering. Grace is much like mercy. Grace is God's love and goodness expressed to those who are undeserving of his kindness. See, that's the story of our salvation. And patience is also an expression of love and mercy given to those who refuse grace. 
See, I have a memory of reading one of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's sermons in which he makes the point that there are people right now suffering in hell who are morally superior or who were morally superior to those who are alive today and listening to his voice. I mean, what accounts for the fact that judgment has not fallen on all of us? It's not grace, he says, it's patience. And so we see that love and goodness are essential to God's nature, whereas mercy, grace, and patience did not exist from all eternity and are simply the expression of the eternal attributes of love and goodness in a sinful and fallen world. Sin itself cannot change God's essential nature of love and goodness, but it does change the way in which God's love and goodness are expressed. God will always find a way to express his essential nature. That's why grace, mercy, and patience are so precious to us. They tell us that notwithstanding our sin, God will never stop being God, and we, the outward expressions of his love, can never stop being the recipients of his love. Mercy, grace, and patience has ensured that the love and goodness of God will never cease. Thank God for that. The love of God, what an incredible subject for today's message. John, I can see myself, though, and others that have gone through life, and sometimes we say to ourselves, but I can't measure up. How can God possibly love me? How can I possibly experience that kind of love when, when you know what, I'm always in the trenches and I'm always doing things that I know displease him? What, what about the love of God for me? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question, Ben, because I think that as long as we look at our own imperfections, We are constantly wondering how God could love someone like myself, but we're not looking at the perfections of God. God loves me because it is his nature to do so. He's never stopped being loving. He will be loving for all of eternity. It is essential to his being. And once we get a glimpse of the glory of God, we will say to ourselves, I am so glad that I'm loved by God because this is who my God is. So I don't find myself to be lovely, but I find God to be loving. And that's, I think, the antidote to the kind of thinking that you talked about, Ben. What a great message on the nature of God's love, perhaps a familiar concept, and yet it can be rare to hear this doctrine so deeply and carefully taught from Scripture, as we often can take it for granted. Hopefully, you've been greatly encouraged and perhaps also made more aware of this essential attribute of God and how it relates to His goodness and His mercy. As we reflect on God's love, let us be moved in gratitude and worship. Well, be sure to listen again tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues to explain the attributes of God, helping us to properly understand His wrath. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Listen, read, watch. You can connect with Back to the Bible Canada right now from your mobile phone or tablet. The new Back to the Bible Canada free app is one of our latest developments we've launched most recently. And we encourage you to download and start using it if you haven't already done so. Now you never have to worry about missing a broadcast because it's right there on your smartphone or tablet to listen to every day at your leisure. A great option for those who are on the road or want to listen on their way to work. 
everyone can benefit from the convenience of this app, which is available at the Apple or Google Play Store. Again, listen to Dr. Neufeld's latest series, read his weekly blog, connect with us on social media, and so much more. So what are you waiting for? Get the app today. And for further information, call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.